Hi. ActiveHistory.ca is pleased to present a recording of Chad Gaffield's talk, Reimagining Universities in the Digital Age, Historical Reflections and Current Questions. The talk was delivered as part of the University of Ottawa's History Department's Brown Bag Lunch Series on October 7, 2014. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca. Thank you so much, and thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it when, when Mark uh, invited me to talk. I figure after eight years, I haven't done any active research. What would I know? <laughs> but he said, Chad, come on now. And, and then I thought, maybe this is a great opportunity to engage with you in a conversation that I think we're all having at various levels. And certainly over the last eight years, I've been having it in terms of opportunities to visit campuses across Canada internationally. And, and try to think through with you uh, the extent to which we are, in fact, reimagining universities, reimagining campuses, reimagining higher education in the digital age. And to, and to unpack that a bit and to raise some issues uh, that I think I've heard a little bit about already here in my first month, uh, dossiers that are alive for you. Uh, and I wonder if we could just have a conversation. I get to start the conversation. Uh, I'm going to go really, really quickly. I'm going to highlight many things, and I'm going to see, you know, where we want to take this uh, conversation. Obviously, the question of the future of universities is something that's certainly been around uh, a long time. Uh, my sense is that every time we turn around, there's another event. This one is just recently in Halifax uh, on universities in the 21st century, and they go way back. I, I ended up doing a book when I was at the University of Victoria in the 1980s, the title of the book we called was Universities in Crisis, the Future of a Medieval Institution in the 21st Century. So this is something that, that's been obviously going around a long time. Well, the basic role of historians, when anyone says something's different, something's new, our mission in life generally is to, is to you know, say, wait a minute. So we hear a lot today, people looking at their devices, heads down, and so on. And we say, look, as historians, our mission in life is to say, wait a minute now, there's some continuity here. Or if we, if we don't say that, we say, you know, look, <clears throat> this is really a new version of something we know. Uh, and, and, you know, so our mission in life is to not embrace something really changed. Whatever it is, their origins, back, continuity, we, that's our mission in life. But there's no doubt on the other side of things that we could say, okay, well, what's going on today is a lot of continuity. You know, the story of the 19th century was the story of mass schooling. Uh, the story of the 20, uh, 20th century was the story of high schools, secondary schools in, in many, many countries around the world. And we could say what's going on now, the 21st century, is going to be a version of that. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of continuity on that score. There's more of it. Uh, we, could, we, could certainly, uh, we could certainly say that. And similarly with new media, we could say, well, we've seen this before, different versions of it, but not necessarily something that uh, is not in continuity, not a, a lot of continuity. But there's no doubt about it. There's another argument, and we certainly hear this a lot, in terms of a technologically driven change, something different now. And you hear this a lot, whether you call it a digital age or a connected age. Technology is, and there's often a very positive spin to this. It's enabling us to do more, know more, and achieve more. And I think at the end here it says higher education can be better than previously imagined. And certainly there's, uh, there's all sorts of dimensions to that people talk about learning, all the different ways in which we have interactive, personalized, flexible learning, new pathways. Technology supports learning, lifelong uh, and life-wide, similarly with research. 
Technology enables new discoveries in a worldwide scholarly community, richer uh, data, visualization, collaboration, and so on. And recently, there's been a world of emphasis on MOOCs, uh, less recently, and that's become interesting, and maybe we'll talk about that. But surely there's that sense of revolutionary fervor, and technology is the thing that's really driving all that. On the other hand, of course, there's uh, the skeptics, uh, and there's lots of research now that emphasizes what they call neuroplasticity, how all those digital images and engaging is really changing our brains in, in ways that uh, are not always seen as good, particularly in children who are, who are constantly. So there's a lot of research on that side. <clears throat> a lot of concern about the surveillance society and what that means in terms of security. In Canada, there are big research projects focused on this, and there's a, and there's a good tradition. So in, start, in, in, in uh, there's a sense that this technology... Yes, it's driving change, but not necessarily in a good way. Another aspect of this is growing inequality. Since that there's a bifurcation in the world happening now between one group that's getting and benefiting from all this uh, in, in dramatic ways and, and uh, others that are being controlled or, or at least losing out in this. There's concern about things that never forget. I'm sure all parents tell their children, don't put it on, it'll never die. But on the other hand, we know that that's a, there's a, even maybe a greater risk. Uh, this is the early uh, machines brought in to uh, undertake the 1961 Canadian census, the first time it was done in a machine-readable way, computerized way, on mag tapes. You cannot read this now. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, uh, it's... Uh, it, and, and so there's a real issue, a new kind of end of history now, in terms of uh, the fact that, and we know this, how many of you just created files five years ago that you can't read, let alone 10 or 20 years ago, uh, and that's certainly a, a, a big issue. But either way, whether you view it as good or bad or how you view it, there's a dominant discourse around the fact that it's technology-driven in a good way or a bad way, and you can think about that, and I want to problematize that a bit, uh, and I want to do it in this way. Here's a picture. Maybe Edith Kronach is the only one in the room that might know who this guy is, but even that would be a stretch. He's the one that invented the first movie camera, very famous, but no one knows him. No one knows him. But everybody knows these people, and I think that's, that's kind of important. So one of the things I want to point to today is the notion that technology in and of itself, and that's not really the issue, we want to get behind that. What's really, uh, how's it being used, and, and let's focus on that a bit today. So what's going on? My argument has kind of got three pieces to it. One, <clears throat> the argument that Really, what we're, we have to start with is deep con, uh, conceptual changes, and we'll unpack that slightly. The notion that these deep conceptual changes are being enabled, accelerated, and then influenced, influenced positively and negatively in iterative ways by digital technologies. And we'll talk about that. One of the aspects of that that's important is that every prediction about the use of computers back to Thomas Watson and IBM in the 1940s, ends up underestimating their use. It's it's really interesting phenomena. And so I'm going to unpack why. What is it about these technologies that end up, have ended up, uh, uh, being so important? And I'm going to link it to these, these conceptual changes. And I think in this context, then, that's why I think we are reimagining higher education. But I would say it's similar to and linked to and can be understood in the same way with debates about other sectors. 
uh, and, and we can maybe talk about that. And I think if you look, my, my reading again of the research is that we are in fact living in a paradigm shifting era in a Kuhnian sense, big thing for an historian to say, because again, we tend to not like, not uh, want to emphasize that part of things. I'm going to emphasize three deep conceptual changes. Complexity, new ways of thinking about complexity, new ways of thinking about diversity, and new ways of thinking about creativity. I think there are many. I just want to talk about these three as my three favorite. But maybe, maybe you have other ones, and, and maybe, maybe these ones are not uh, as important. Complexity. I think one of the deep conceptual changes that we've gone from, and again, I'm thinking about this in a very stylized way, the conviction that complexity is only apparent. In other words, if we really look at anything, in fact, there's simple uh, phenomena that, that, that really uh, lay at the heart of that. To recognition of complexity is a common phenomenon. And that's where we get expressions like nonlinearity, small, large kind of links, emergent properties, on and on. Uh, and I think that, that, that we have really changed how we think, think, think about this. Big implications that I'm going to talk about in a minute. What I find interesting is our Department of History at the University of Ottawa has played a big role in many of the changes I'm going to talk about. My favorite recent one is John Bonnet did a PhD here and his book came out of that. And when he traced this new way of thinking in terms of complexity, he traces it uh, in significant part to Harold Ennis, one of the great Canadian figures, uh, new ways of thinking about change. Uh, and I think that's uh, pretty, pretty cool. My second deep conceptual change is diversity. And I think we're certainly, as historians, familiar with this narrative of how diversity went from being a problem to be eliminated, whether it's uh, single languages or whether it's schools or, or no matter how you think about it, to diversity is the foundation of strength and resilience. And this goes across fields, again, economic diversity, genetic diversity, on and on, a very different way of thinking about diversity. My last one, and one that really fits us a lot, I think, is the notion of creativity. I think we've structured things a lot until fairly recently on the notion of creativity being the result of and something that follows mastery of a current frontier of knowledge. And I think now most studies show that in fact creativity, new things, do not simply come at a, at a progression of mastery of the established uh, frontier of knowledge, and in fact that can hurt one's ability to be creative. And also it goes away from the notion of just a small group in society doing all the creating and everybody else, the rest of us, just doing the implying. And now there's the interest in tapping the entire pool of talent. Well, this has been a hard, uh, hard thing. Um, you know, the notion that we would ask the audience about anything, uh, it's been a hard sell. I think there are a few things that are coming together that are really accelerating this. This, uh, I, think it's, I, I think it's always been... There, at some level, it's really accelerating it. There's an increasing number of people, educated people, all have access to digital content resources and social media. And this is making crowdsourcing such an amazing, uh, amazing phenomenon, citizen science, on and on, however you, however you think about that. And there are lots of examples. And it decenters quite a bit the campus uh, and, that, and that role that the campuses have played historically. So... So in terms of these deep conceptual changes, I'm going to argue that research is really fueling and being fueled by them in interesting ways, and we're, and we're part of that, of that mix. And my example is schooling. 
I mentioned earlier that mass schooling gets uh, across uh, Western societies, and in fact, many parts of the world, becomes a norm during the course of, of the 19th century. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, no one ever really posed the question about how children learn. And the models were used and so on were basically out of military or, or manufacturing and so on, and it was a broadcast model. <clears throat> well, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I think all of us have either witnessed this as a prof or felt like doing it, and certainly as a student. I mean, some cases are probably worse than others. I hope nobody saw that. But the reality of the matter is we now know in terms of studying learning outcomes and so on that the broadcast model doesn't work well. And in fact, research shows that I'm already starting to press up against the limits of your ability to absorb. About 18 minutes is about the norm, uh, about the limit. And then after that, it starts to go in and out, and then the whole thing starts to go out. So I figure 90-minute lecture, you're really done by the end. But that's why I think there's a lot of uh, effort now in terms of rethinking what we're doing. <coughs> You've heard about flipped classrooms. I know that's a debate here uh, on campus a lot. But the basic notion is that sitting there and passively hearing is a very, very difficult way, and we want to engage students in new ways, and, and what's that like? But again, it has to do with the fact that it's linked to my uh, notions of complexity, diversity, and creativity, and, and how that all works. A metaphor for thinking about this change way, I think, is I like the notion of T-shaped. And increasingly, we're thinking about whether it's policies, practices, different way, kind of mentalities, this notion of T-shaped. That to say that we've got to have a specificity, there has to be, uh, whether it's called a functional area, discipline, special, something going deep, but it's got to be connected. It's got to be horizontally connected. And that ability to work outside of core area is, is really, really important. And a lot of research is showing, is showing that in many cases. So we picked this up in many ways, talk about T-shaped knowledge, skills, and renewable competencies. That renewable competencies is expression you hear a bit about. The notion of combining the strengths of specialization with what I like to call contextualization, that, that horizontal piece. And then how can, and that will help us learn to participate across a lot of what were those boundaries, whether it's on campus, whether it's across society, whether it's globally. Uh, and and how, how can we foster that kind of mentality, those kind of competencies, those kind of skills? Now, this has a history. I think a lot of the innovations that we've seen in academic programs over the while, I would say a lot of them are focused on what we might think about as T-shaped innovations uh, linked to that, and there, and there are many others, and you can think about them. So let's pull this together, this reimagining campuses. Well, in education, I think we're gone from the push of teaching to the pull of learning, and learning content and competencies at the same time, uh, and really seeing that, not imbibing information, but rather developing competencies, and the, and the learning T, I think, is part of that, again, uh, students and former colleagues uh, and current colleagues here at the University of Ottawa have been important in this. This is by John Lutz, his PhD here, and, and he was one of the first to develop this website, Who Killed William Robinson, which was designed for uh, not only undergraduates, but, but even those in high school in terms of real engagement, un uh, engaging students in a very, very uh, different, different way, and, and that's gone on to uh, continued development. That was just an early precursor of, of some of the later examples that you know about. This discussion is going on all over the place now. Here's a major effort funded by the Mellon Foundation 
humanities writ large, how can you redefine the role of humanities in undergraduate education and take advantage of some of these new ways of thinking about learning and, and less about teaching and what that means in, in, in this connected age, what that means in a world that's thinking differently about complexity, diversity, and creativity. This is an event I'll, I'll be in, a, in uh, next week during reading week, and this is this notion of program-specific skills. So this is not what you're learning in terms of, you know, when was the War of 1812, but rather what kind of skills are you getting, uh, are you getting out of that, and how can we articulate that, and what are they, and can we do uh, better? And I know Jennifer Polk has been one of the people who's really worked on this a lot, and, and I think it would be great to en en engage that conversation uh, with those who are interested. This is being fueled by many different things. Employers, for example, who emphasize a lot that they're less interested in terms of what the major is, and does it get to enhanced competencies in terms of thinking critically, communicating, solving complex problems, and so on. Similarly, uh, the notion, a lot of things that we wouldn't normally think about is academic kind of uh, 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 skills that we want to learn, but in fact are so important in terms of ethical judgment, integrity, intercultural skills, and so on. And the point here is that they, it's really hard to learn them in a passive learning environment, sitting in a chair in a broadcast teaching approach. This is an event uh, uh, coming up as well down in Niagara, and I know a number of you may be there. I'll be there. It's, it's, a, real, it's a real attempt to unpack this and talk more about what, what that all might mean and how we might uh, get there. It's not only the undergraduate level. This is coming to... Uh, the University of Ottawa very shortly, this white paper on the future of the, of the PhD, for example. It's going to be here, and I know, I think, Sidney Carrier is our, one of our leaders here on this, on this uh, engaging with this, what's called a national conversation, uh, and, and that's an exciting point. So, it's not only education, it's also research. I would argue that we've similarly moved from increasing specialization, like the curriculum pyramid, in other words, going from uh, First-year courses, very, very broad, and then as you move up, increasingly, increasingly, increasingly through the PhD, getting increasingly uh, specialized to thinking instead about, uh, about a way in which we combine that specialization with this contextualization. And what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> this is, this is the one thing I'll use for my shirt days that's, I think, kind of fun, just for a minute. This was a survey that was done. Many of you responded. Uh, it's, it's very robust. So I think we can take it as representative. This is across social science humanities faculty members in Canada. <clears throat> Over almost 7,000 responded. So let's get the percentages quickly in your head. Uh, on the left here is going to be exclusively disciplinary. And on the far right is going to be extremely interdisciplinary. And two in the middle. So think about what your percentages look like. And just for fun, we'll break it out, social sciences, humanities, and just for fun, we'll add in history. Now again, this is not a test, but in your mind, if anyone arrives at these results, I, I think I'd be really interested, because I sure didn't. <clears throat> it has become not cool, and this is an anonymous survey, not cool to call yourself exclusively disciplinary. Even an anonymous survey, not cool. <laughs> the other thing that I find really interesting is there's a lot of similarity, and we broke this down a lot of different ways. 
So clearly there's something going on here. Again, our department has is, is, is got into this early. I, I liked, um, uh, I just was looking at a brochure, La Vanguard de l'histoire sociale, and it, and, it, and it clearly has fostered that uh, over the years. Uh, Jeff Cash and Sidney Paquet put together a volume a few years ago, Sources, Methods, and Interdisciplinarity. And, of course, next spring here, uh, Pierre Antil, uh, who's here, is Pierre, he's our leader uh, for the CHA's program, is rethinking interdisciplinarity in history. <clears throat> and this paragraph is really interesting. Uh, I thought it, it, it does a great job of, of uh, problematizing and, and, and dealing with a lot of the really important aspects of this that, that uh, conference goers might want to engage next spring. The last piece of this puzzle is links between campus and the, and the larger community. And this has a long history, but it's mostly been on the side historically, starting in the 1970s and 80s, in terms of tech transfer. Uh, and there was lots of emphasis on uh, and sort of distance from that, from that larger society. And now it's much more mixed. Uh, notions of community-based research, and certainly in our experience, long history working with the museums and so on, as well as others. But it goes further than that. Now, there's a real call for historians to engage in uh, uh, the big issues of the day. Uh, the History Manifesto is a call to arms to historians and everyone interested in the role of history in contemporary society. This is a, a book that's just coming out by David Armitage, Joe uh, uh, Golden at uh, Brown University, and Armitage is at Harvard. And I'm looking forward to reading it, and I know others are. And I think it's an interesting, an interesting way of of really emphasizing the contributions that historians can make beyond, beyond the, the campus. And it's also in the private sector, which is really interesting in, in our times. <clears throat> it's the notion that Steve Jobs, for example, really sees the success of Apple as being linked to his ability to combine technology with the humanities. Uh, and, and he sees that, that bridge uh, really clearly, and, and you can see it. He, he always argued, and it was true, that Apple never had the best technology. That was never their thing. It was all in their terms of use, how they, how they used that. And he said that was a lot informed by that. And, it, and, and, it, and it's not just Apple. Obviously, Google, for example, uh, in, uh, in three years ago now, the vice president said, hey, uh, we, we're hiring uh, more humanities grads. In fact, uh, what's going on here, the substance of it, uh, uh, we need that in order to be successful. You hear a lot about the data tsunami these days, and one of the things that's really interesting for us is how much of that data relates to human beings, human thought and behavior. That's really, and that's why this has been such an emphasis on this. If the data were just more colliding particles, we wouldn't be reading about it in the newspapers and everywhere else. And I think this is a, a really interesting way of thinking about the notion of Data is really enabling, in, in new and interesting ways, a better understandings of the human condition. And historians have certainly been in that, many people in this department, creating uh, unprecedented amounts of evidence uh, available both for teaching and, and for research. Now, obviously, we've always had a lot of data, but we've never really thought about it in, in the way in which the question was posed some while ago, if this were all digitized, how would you analyze a million books? What does that look like? And those sort of questions were at the heart of the Digging Into Data Challenge. And I think, I think the whole notion that literary scholars, historians, on and on, 
are really at the forefront of our attempts to think through how we can really take advantage of the possibilities and enhance understandings of human beings uh, in, in new ways. This has really caught the attention of the press. I think people instinctively know that it's not just the widgets, it's not just the pipes and so on, that it's about use and the possibilities here and digital keys for unlocking the humanity's riches, and, and there's a lot of that. One of, the, one of the ways in which it's often thought about is the size of these cultural databases now. You know, there's a lot of emphasis in terms of, you know, the, the sky survey and, and, the, and, and the collider and so on. It turns out that the amount of evidence about human beings that, that's uh, analyzable by historians and others is, is in fact much, much greater. This calls, though, for an end to the two solitudes, the notion uh, that, you know, people are good in math and then people over here, but we know now, and semiotically there's been a lot of research on this, words and numbers are both representations, and our ability to handle and analyze and deal with both should be part of our, part of the way in which we work, and so we have a lot of work to do, I think, in terms of getting to where the kind of thing that Jobs was talking about, but many, many others, T-shaped, uh, uh, across across our field. One cool example that I like, New York Times gave their uh, uh, prize in, in 2010, uh, best idea of the year. <laughs> what they did, a, a literature prof and, and a computer scientist at U of T, they analyzed Agatha Christie's novels. And they answered for the first time a question that had really stymied a lot of people, and that was, when did Agatha Christie start to suffer from Alzheimer's? And they were able, in terms of, of their study, to show that. turned out it's kind of interesting. Some of her most successful novels were written after. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but it's, but it's clear that um, uh, she, was, she was suffering. It's also clear in terms of communication and so on. It's a really interesting textual analysis. Digital Humanity Center has been popping up all over the, all over the place. This is from 2012. And I think it's only understandable... Uh, if you link it to the, the extent to which the humanities and disciplines like history are very comfortable with the new ways of thinking about complexity, diversity, and creativity. Uh, I think they, those, those, the, the conceptual changes resonate well in terms of our fields, and I think that helps explain uh, what, what's going on now. And there's some great analyses of this, sometimes called the computational turn, uh, and I think it's, it's something that's obviously causing a lot of excitement, and it's across fields. This one is from the historians talking about historical scholarship in the digital turn. Obviously, all of this uh, really flies up uh, against and rubs up against a lot of the policies, practices, and so on that came out of the 19th and 20th century, uh, uh, I think a, a different era, and we're working through all these issues at, at, at various levels, uh, preservation, curation, access is, is a huge one. Social inequality, digital divides, on and on. Huge issues that we're trying to collectively work through. My sense is we're doing, we're making some progress, but again, I think there's some big issues in we'll end with that. I also want to give a shout out to the University of Ottawa, who is making some interesting uh, steps forward in terms of embracing this changing world of scholarly communication, uh, really rethinking this in a much more integrated way. And again, folks here at, at U of O are, are important in this, kind of getting away from the notion that it's of the physical object and instead reimagining that in terms of, well, what's the actual work being involved here? 
and the actual work is in terms of the generating, producing the content, the filtering, the curating the knowledge, the ideas, the insights, and, and so on, and it's not the actual physical object, that's the expression of it in that sense, but the real work is elsewhere. And of course that's expanding. This is uh, uh, Joanne McCutcheon, uh, who, who is in our department and been a leader in this in terms of, of thinking through uh, how this happens. This was our first uh, cut at it, and then the next cut showed progress. Uh, and, and I encourage you to read Joe's uh, articles about this. I also noticed that uh, Lauren Daniel is, is in the mix now and has got her blog up. I like this. A history student seeking to bring history and the humanities into the digital age. And then another very wise thing. She also has an affinity for cats. And if you ever want to get your webpage read a lot, just mention cats. So smart, smart move. But it's really interesting, and it would be fun to see where that goes. There are also different kinds of metrics on this. Altmetrics is a really interesting field, and our library is embracing that a bit to see where all that goes. Uh, different ways of measuring, thinking about, conceptualizing. There's also this author fund, which is a, uh, had seemed really promising to me, where there's some support for getting publication as new scholarly uh, communication world some money to do that, and then you get a note that says, actually, there's no more money left. And so, <laughs> so that goes back to this issue around, you know, I think there's so many policies, practices, and so on that have to get reworked out in all this, and, and the, we have a, a long way to go. Uh, and next, uh, actually, Thursday, I'll, I'll be quickly, there's a, a event in Washington, D.C., Thinking through, and the Association of Research Libraries in the U.S. is is thinking about the Scully monograph and what's that look like in digital age, and and there's some really interesting, and exciting ideas uh, associated with, with with that. I want to close to say that there's a great article by one of the pioneers in, among historians at Ayers. Uh, some of you may have seen Valley of Shadow and and, and used that in class and and, and so on, um, and he's published an article that basically says. Wait a minute now. Are, are, is the digital technologies, the possibilities and so on, are they simply being used to be better, faster, different ways of doing the 19th and 20th century? Or are the paradigm shifting possibilities really emerging? And is this going to be better? Or, or are we going to have it simply another way in which uh, we're going to lead to the kind of issues that emerged out of the 19th and 20th century in terms of everything from inequality uh, 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 through all kinds of uh, other uh, privacy issues and so on, uh, uh, kind of bad aspects of, uh, uh, of all this. And it's a really interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting analysis. Uh, and, and I would say, I think it's on the table. I'm going to end with Northrop Fry's because I think, I'd like to say it, it depends a lot on us. His book, The Educated Imagination, he phrases it this way. You know, I, I, at some level, I think it seems to me this job of the imagination, you know, we have to produce out of the society we have to live in a vision of the society we want to live in and make it go uh, uh, the right way. Thank you so much. been listening to a recording of Chad Gaffield's talk, Reimagining Universities in the Digital Age, Historical Reflections and Current Questions. The talk was delivered as part of the University of Ottawa History Department's Brown Bag Lunch Series on October 7, 2014. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca.